welcome to the Excuse My African podcast. My name is Stella Damasis and I am your host. Join me as I take you on a journey through the eyes of a misrepresented and misunderstood African girl abroad. In this episode, I will talk about African history, Queen Nzinga. Queen Nzinga is a woman, an African legend, and I just wanted us to talk about her briefly because when we talk about Black Lives Matter, when we talk about the African-American experience in America and what they're going through, I realized that living in America, a lot of African-American children are taught, you know, about the slavery. The history is always about the slavery and things that happened when their ancestors came to America and were brought in as slaves. But a lot of them are not really taught the real African history, the history of their ancestral home, the history of the legends, the history of what makes us royalty, kings and queens, you know. So I felt the need to continue in the series talking about Africa before the slavery and giving an insight to some of the things that I feel that our children should know and be proud of. So when it comes to talking about who they are, where they are from, they know what stories to pull resources from. And today I chose to talk about Queen Nzinga because she's one of the strongest people to have lived and, you know, come out of Africa that everyone should know and be proud of. So I'm hoping that after this episode, you feel the need to look into this more and find out more as much as you can about Queen Nzinga. So um, her full name is Anna de Souza Nzinga Mbande. She was born into a royal family of Ndongo in Central, Central West around 1583. She was the daughter of Ngola Kilombo of Ndongo and her mother was Kangela. Now, Kangela was one of Nzinga's father's slave wives and his favorite concubine. Yes, you heard me right, slave wives. And Nzinga had two sisters, Mukumbu and Kifunji, but she also had a brother who was Mbandi Kilwanji, who took over the throne after their father's death. Now, legend has it that the birth process of Nzinga was so special and different. When she was born, she had a cord, the umbilical cord, tied around her neck. And at that time, it was said that when kids were born like that, you know, they they would grow up to be very um, powerful and proud. Now, when Nzinga was 10 years old, her father became the king of Ndongo. She was greatly favored by this man. Her father favored her so much. And they said that he he did that freely because she was female. And at that time, women were not allowed to ascend the throne. She was not a threat to the male heir of the throne. So um, he felt, you know, free to do whatever he wanted, to take care of her, to love her, but show her favoritism. But there, there wasn't a need for jealousy because the only thing that would make siblings fight is birthright and inheritance as regards the throne. Now, but there's something that Zinga's father did that really got my attention. You know, he made sure that she got military training and she was trained as a warrior to fight alongside her father. Now, why would a man do that with his daughter if deep down he didn't think that it would come in handy and that she was special? I mean, think about it. She even participated in many official outings with her father, including legal councils, war councils, and important rituals. So imagine this man taking his young daughter wherever he was going, When he had to do negotiations, when he had to talk about legal matters, when he had to talk about different things that were reserved for royalty, he would take Nzinga. 
Now, another thing that really got my attention was the fact that Nzinga, out of everyone, was taught to read and write in Portuguese by the Portuguese missionary. At that time, Ndongo was filled with Portuguese missionaries. Or should I say the guise of it? Like, people would come in in droves and and raid African countries. But some of them came under the guise of being missionaries to preach about Christianity. But they came in and then brought in other people. Their army would come. Their soldiers would come. And you would wonder, why would missionaries need to bring in their armies and their soldiers? Because when they come in, then there's a need for war. Then there's a need to have a crisis. Why didn't the missionaries just come on their own? Well, anyway, moving on. At this time, the kingdom of Ndongo was already dealing with multiple issues because of the conflict they had with the Portuguese. The Portuguese had come to Ndongo in the 15th century. They focused on the port cities at first as part of the Atlantic slave trade and their consolidation of power of the region. Hmm. When, I look about, when I look at this story, you know, I think about a lot of things. Now, in 1571, Sebastian of Portugal ordered the subjugation of Ndongo. The subjugation of Ndongo. That's what the Portuguese wanted. Now, there was another tribe called the Imbangala, a group of young nomadic warriors already in conflict with Ndongo. These people joined forces with the Portuguese. The Imbangala wanted to seize Ndongo land. And the Portuguese were just waiting, wanting to claim slaves that would come out of the war, that would come out of the crisis. The situation was now worsened because many Ndongo leaders now joined the Portuguese side which I still don't understand, which reduced the manpower and tributary funds available to the king. Now, by the time that Nzinga's father became king in 1593, there was already a 10-year war. He met a 10-year war. The king tried a variety of methods to handle the crisis, including diplomacy, negotiations, and open warfare, but he was unable to improve the situation. That was scary. In 1617, he died, and his son who was um, Zinga's brother, came into power. As the new king, Mbandi felt paranoid that one day Nzinga's only son, Nzinga had a son, a baby, a little baby. But the king was afraid, the new king was afraid that that baby would plot to have him assassinated. So instead, he ordered that son to be killed. He killed his sister's son because he was afraid. And then he forcibly had Nzinga sterilized, ensuring that she would never have a child again. It's like taking out someone's womb. So she would never bear children, so that he's not afraid of being assassinated and overthrown. Now, perhaps fearing for her life, Nzinga decided to leave Ndongo. And she went to the kingdom of Matamba, where she stayed until her brother, this same brother who's the king who killed her son, asked her to return home. Why? He wanted her to be his ambassador to the Portuguese. And this he did in 1621. Now, her brother was failing to defeat the Portuguese and needed Nzinga's help to negotiate a treaty. Hmm, who better? She was the only one who was fit for the job. Why? She spoke fluent Portuguese. She was trained by her father in negotiations, in legal counsel, in everything. She was trained to handle things like this. So the question now goes back to why did her father teach her all of this and not his son, who was built to be heir to the throne? You see that? Now, upset with the famine and terror that ravaged her home village, she agreed to meet to negotiate with the Portuguese governor. In 1622, Nzinga arrived in Luanda. Now, while Ndongo leaders typically met the Portuguese in Western clothing, my girl, 
the Queen Nzinga chose to wear opulent traditional clothing of the Ndongo people in order to display that their culture was not inferior. Look, you come to Africa, you want to have a meeting with me, I'm royalty. I am going to dress the way my people dress. I'm not going to be like the other people, the other Ndongo leaders who are kissing butt, excuse me, to impress you. I'm not here to impress you. This is my country, okay? Now, the story goes that when Nzinga arrived, now get this, there were chairs for the Portuguese individuals, but they only gave her a mat. They gave Queen Nzinga a mat to sit on. Come on now, guys. But you know what she did? She told a soldier, hey, dude, go on all fours. I'm going to sit on you. Her soldier formed himself to be her chair. Okay? She was not going to sit on the floor in her own country representing as an ambassador to Ndongo, representing the king. There was no way she was going to sit on the floor, okay? So she sat on one of her soldiers and she spoke to the governor face to face. Now get this, this, this woman, this Nzinga, this fierce lady was a fierce negotiator who made sure to flatter the Portuguese, according to the story. She was able to reach an agreement to the Portuguese, which entailed the withdrawal of Portuguese troops from Ndongo, Withdraw your troops, yep, and recognition of his sovereignty. She was also able to ensure that the Ndongo did not need to pay tributes. She did this by successfully arguing that the kingdom was an independent one rather than a conquered state. In return, she agreed to open trade routes to the Portuguese as well as study Christianity and become baptized. Now, I am a Christian, but I'm not going to lie. A lot of these people used Christianity to do a lot of harm to Africans, a lot of harm. I love Jesus, I love God, but these people used a lot of Christianity to really deceive our people, and that hurts. It really hurts. Well, anyway, consequently, Nzinga was baptized in Luanda, and she adopted the name Ana de Souza in honor of her godparents, Ana de Silva, um, and the governor de Souza. Now, she sometimes would use this name in her correspondence. But following the negotiations, peace between Ndongo and Imbangala collapsed. The Ndongo were driven out of their court in Kabasa, which made the king officially in exile. Now, because the king at that time was in exile, the Portuguese did not want to proceed with the treaty that they had earlier signed with Nzinga. Because they said if the king was in exile and unbaptized, there was no need to continue with the treaty. I didn't understand that because you had a treaty with Nzinga. Nzinga promised you all of this. She got baptized. But now they're saying since the king himself is not baptized, which means that they were not even ready to honor the treaty in the first place. They didn't honor it. They continued to raid the kingdom, taking Africans as captives and precious items in the process. So let me tell you something. Majority of what you see in your museums abroad, in Europe, in America, majority of what you see that they have used in their own countries actually belongs to Africa. Majority of all these things belong to Africa. And that's one thing that you guys should know. So when they start telling you you are not worth it, better remember who you are and where you're coming from. In 1624, Nzinga's brother died of a mysterious cause. Some say it was suicide, some say it was poisoning. But before his death, he had made it clear that Nzinga should be his successor. So an opulent funeral was arranged and some of his remains were preserved. So 
he could be consulted by Mzinga. Now, after his death, the Portuguese declared war on Ndongo as well as on other nearby tribes. They are declaring war because they just wanted to get the slaves and get all the goodies from this land. Now, Nzinga had a rival, Harry Ndongo, who was opposed to a woman ruling. Harry was later christened Felipe. Yeah, with the help of the Kasanji kingdom and Ndongo nobility who opposed Nzinga, she was removed from Luanda. Nzinga then fled and she kidnapped the queen of Matamba and her army. Whew, what a girl! From there, she made herself queen and took over the kingdom. Then she returned to Ndongo and took back her throne. Now get this, not only was she removed from Luanda, this woman kidnapped the queen of Matamba and the army went to that Matamba, took over the place as queen of that kingdom and returned to Ndongo with her new army and took over that throne of Ndongo. Nzinga used her genealogy to support her claim to the throne of Ndongo against aristocratic rivals. However, neither Nzinga nor her predecessors her predecessor brother had a direct right to the throne because they actually were children of slave wives, not the first wife. But listen, Nzinga strategically used the claims that she was properly descended from the main royal line because of her father, while her rivals were not at all. Okay? The rivals that were fighting her to take over the throne, they were not from a direct lineage of royalty. But she says, even if my mother was a slave wife, my father was the king. She fought back and forth because, you know, at that time, women were not allowed to do this. She was never able to give a credible reason for a woman to rule. And she was clearly aware that being female reduced her legitimacy in the eyes of even her supporters. As a result, Nzinga adopted a more radical method of overcoming the illegitimacy of her sex. At some point in the 1640s, Nzinga decided to become like a man, which is actually a practice many female rulers in Central and Western Africa used to maintain power. She was behaving like a man, giving authority like a man. She had masculine pursuits. She would lead troops to fight war. She would go personally to battlefields and she would fight and fight. So many things happened. Sometimes she would win the war. Sometimes she would lose the war, but she kept going. The story goes on, and I'm hoping that all of you out there listening to me, you would go and find out more about her story. Queen Nzinga's story is very peculiar. It is very different. It is very strong. And she's not the only one. There were so many women in Africa who took over power, who fought wars, who did greater things than you can imagine that we need to know about. And there are so many of them. Today, she is remembered in Angola as the mother of Angola, the best negotiator, the protector of her people. She's still honored throughout Africa as a remarkable leader and woman for her political and diplomatic acumen, as well as her brilliant military tactics. Accounts of her life are often romanticized, and she's considered a symbol of the fight against oppression. She fought and fought too. So when we're talking about oppressing the black people, let's talk about women like her who fought against oppression and who showed it with her lifestyle. You cannot oppress me. She ultimately managed to shape her state into a form that tolerated her authority. Though surely the fact that she survived all attacks on her and built up a strong base of loyal supporters helped as much as the relevance of the precedents she cited.
Now, while Nzinga had obviously not overcome the idea that females could not rule in Ndongo during her lifetime and had to become a male to return to retain power, her female successors faced little problem in being accepted as rulers, but this is because of her. The clever use of her gender and her political understandings helped lay a foundation for future leaders of Ndongo today. In the period of 104 years that followed Nzinga's death in 1663, queens ruled for at least 80 of them. Nzinga is a leadership role model for all generations of Angolan women. Women in Angola today display remarkable social independence and are found in the country's army, police force, government, and public and private economic sectors. Nzinga was embraced as a symbol of the people's movement for the liberation of Angola during the Civil War. There's a major street in Luanda that's named after her. There's a movie that's been done about her. It was released in 2013. Teach your children about Queen Nzinga. It makes for a beautiful story. Everyone should know about legends like this. Brave women, brave men of Africa who are legends, who are kings, and who are queens. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and I hope you'll join me again for the next one. You can contact me via email, excusemyafrican at gmail.com, or visit the website, excusemyafrican.com, for more details. Remember to stay positive and give love. Thank you.